Grab your Bibles and flip to uh, John chapter 6 is uh, where we're going to, now is the time where we um, open our word and uh, hear from the Lord and study the scriptures together and you guys get to witness a miracle today Um, because God willing we will be done at 1130 and so you'll get to witness me preach a 35-minute sermon. So, you ready? It's going to be awesome. Um, we're in the Gospel of John. We've been working verse by verse where kind of the whole thrust of the Gospel of John, as we've said, is John gives us a purpose statement in chapter 20 where he says, I've written these things, I've curated these events um, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and uh, that by believing you may have life in His name. And so every uh, event that we study is aimed at pushing us to believe in Jesus more, to trust Him more, and to experience life in His name more and more. And, uh, and so last week we talked about the, um, how Jesus said He explained the feeding of the 5,000. A couple weeks ago, he fed the 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He fed 5,000 men plus the women and children. And, and, uh, and so then, he has this walking on water experience. And now, last week, he was in a synagogue and he was teaching about the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. He said, I didn't just do that to feed your bellies. I fed you to show you, to point to the fact that I am the bread of life. That I am the bread of life. That I am the one who fills you and satisfies you and sustains you. And, um, and then they don't like it. So this is the fallout. This is the fallout of um, Jesus' sermon. So we're in John chapter 6, verse 60. Through 71, we're going to read it together, we'll pray, and then, and then study it. John 6, 60. Are you there? You ready? Here we go. John 6, 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to Him, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it's granted to Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil." He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and that You have um, revealed Yourself to us in these Scriptures. I thank You for Your Spirit who's going to illuminate them to us today. I thank You for what You've done in the lives of all these young men and women this weekend. I pray that um, what You planted in them would grow into maturity. I pray that You would uh, seal them and move in them and continue to grow them as they depend on You daily. And Father, I pray that You would speak to us, that You would help us to see and hear and receive Your Word. I pray that You would um, change our hearts and our lives, that we'd leave here more trusting in You than ever. And God, I need You. I need You, uh, Your Spirit, to guide me and help me and speak through me in these next 30 minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, today what we're seeing in the text is that not everyone is a true disciple. Not everyone is a true follower of Jesus. That there are true followers, and then there are false followers. And did you know that? That there's some people who look like Christians, and maybe they know the Christian language, and they talk like Christians, and they maybe do some things that Christians do, like go to church and read their Bible on occasion. But um, that there's something deeper than just surface level stuff that has to go on in order for someone to truly be a disciple. And uh, what we see here is that this uh, teaching that Jesus gave that was very difficult to His hearers, to His audience, um, man, it began to separate. It began to uh, sift between the people who were true followers and who were not. And I want us to... Uh, come away today knowing what it means to be a true disciple. What does it look like to be a true disciple? What's the difference between true disciples and false disciples? And so the first thing we see today is that true disciples commit to follow Jesus. True disciples commit to follow Jesus. Let's just go back through it together. He says, when many of them, um, when many of his disciples heard it, his teaching earlier, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about them, said to this, Does, Do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at um, this? And so, let's just go back and see. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Let's go back to verse uh, 52 to see what, is he, what did He say that got them so upset. Verse 52, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man... Give us His flesh to eat. Jesus just said, I am the bread of life. You eat My flesh, you'll never be hungry again. Eat My flesh if you want eternal life. And, and that was very disturbing to them. How can He tell us to, give, to eat His flesh? Jesus then said to them, like, if, if this was the time to back up and be like, no, that's not what I meant. No, He presses into it a little bit further and He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, like, you don't like the eating the flesh? Let me just add in the drink and the blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because the Father who feeds, for whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's what he said. 
eat my flesh, drink my blood. Then many of the disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Interesting. So what does he mean by listen to it? Because it said they heard it. How many of you know that there's a difference between hearing and listening? Right, ladies? Right? There's a difference between I heard the words that came out of your mouth and I actually listened to it. The listening is not just auditory things happening. It's, it's who can accept it? This is a hard saying. Who can receive it? They heard it. They thought they understood it, but they didn't want to accept it. This is a hard teaching. See, so did you know that no one had a problem with Jesus' actions? Right? No one had a problem with the whole turning water into wine. Everybody loved that. That no one had a problem with him healing their sick. Everybody enjoyed that. No one had a problem with him feeding them, the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody loved Jesus' actions. What they didn't like is his words. It's not just his works, but his words. Um, what people had a hard time with is him saying, I am the Son of God. I and the Father are one. I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They, they found this very offensive, and primarily because the cannibalism was like a no-no, like it is today. <laughs> and, um, but then also, the whole drinking the blood thing, like back in Leviticus, they had a, a law about drinking the blood. They said in Leviticus 17.14, for the life of every creature is in its blood, it, its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature um, is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And so, so on the surface level, they're like, ah, can't drink blood, can't eat flesh, not, not so, don't want to deal with this. They're very offended by it. And they, they were misunderstanding that this is... Um, he was using metaphorical language. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, as I, th I thought about this, they, they heard this teaching of Jesus and they found it very offensive and therefore they left him. Um, and then what are some teachings that, of Jesus that in our culture we've, we would find offensive? What, what would be some teachings that are hard to accept or hard to listen to? What are some things that that separate people, that would say, the crowd would say, not following that, but true Jesus followers have to accept it as authoritative. What are some of those, you think? Maybe, um, maybe the biblical uh, sexual ethic, you know, that, that God says, hey, sexuality, all sexual activity is to be between one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. Anything outside of that is sin. That's hard to accept. That's too restrictive. Don't just let love love whoever they want. That's too restrictive. How narrow-minded of you. Um, unfortunately, this has crept its way into the church, and now it's even normal for this to be going on inside of Jesus followers. So biblical sexual ethic, that's offensive to me. I don't believe it. I'm not following that. Um, what about the gender roles? The, the sex, sex roles, gender roles, those, those two terms have been separated and combined, but that God created uh, men and women. He created them male and female. Woo! Who thought that would be a controversial statement? 
that God actually created two genders, two sexes, male and female, men and women, and he created them equal, but this is, this is, this is the hard part, even in the church, equal but different. Now, we all know that men and women are different, except for when it comes to men and women's roles. And uh, the Bible teaches clearly that men and women are equal before God in value and dignity and worth, but we have different roles to play. That husbands in the home are called to lead and love and serve, and wives, therefore, are called to respect and serve also. Like we play different roles. The roles between men and women aren't all interchangeable. Man, some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now. Are some of these teachings of Jesus offensive, hard to accept? Um, what about his exclusivity claims? That, um, that he says, I am the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That, that, that the way to God is exclusively through faith in Jesus. That there's not many ways to God. It's not everybody. All religions are somewhat the same. We're all just following you know, different paths up the same mountain. No, he says. There's one way. And, the, and then um, the truth. The truth. That's offensive. Don't you know, Pastor? We're in 2021. Truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. might be true for her. That's her truth. My truth. Where's this whole my truth come from? It's either true or it's not true. And uh, just the fact that absolute truth exists, that the Word of God is authoritative and inerrant, and that we stand underneath it as our sole authority. Gosh, I'm feeling like this sermon's going to be longer than 30 minutes. But the exclusivity claims that heaven and hell are real realities, that we will exist in one of these places forever, all these things, I think, um, really disturb our modern sensibilities. And these are things that people look at the teachings of Jesus today and say, I don't, I don't believe that. That's hard to hear. That's offensive. That's hard to accept. And, um, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, offensive doesn't mean false. Did you know that? Offensive doesn't mean false. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that it's wrong. That whenever you're offended by the truth, maybe you've heard this said, if the truth offends you, and change. Right? When the truth disturbs my thinking of what's right and wrong, I need to change what I believe is right and wrong. I should be less concerned about if I'm offended by the truth and more concerned if my life is offending the God of truth. Not am I offended by it, but am I offensive to it? And Jesus, look, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can receive this? Who can accept it? But Jesus, knowing in himself 
The disciples were grumbling about this. Do you take offense of this? He knew in himself, Jesus knows whose faith is authentic and whose faith is not. That you might fool your friends or your family. You might even fool the fellowship, your, your church, for a time. But you're not fooling God. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on inside. And uh, he can tell if you're a true disciple, if you're truly following Jesus. True disciples commit to follow Jesus. I'm not giving up just because it offends me. This offense, take offense, this is, a, it, this is this idea of a stumbling block. This is, this is a stumbling block that caused them to cease believing. That's what the word means. It's an offense. Verse 62, he says, um, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? So he's like, this whole teaching on you've got to receive Me to have eternal life, that's offensive to you? What, what, what are you going to do um, <laughs> whenever you find out that I'm the God of the universe. I'm the Creator of all things. I rule heaven and earth. I rule it all. And there's going to be a day where I soon, where I go back to the Father and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and, and then whenever you have your day before me, you're going to find out that I am God. And... Um, I am God. How hard is that going to be to swallow for you? See, um, it is better to allow the gospel to offend you in this life and allow it to change you and submit yourself to it than it is to uh, reject it and then stand before God ultimately to uh, clear up the fact that He is God, the way, the truth, and life, and then it offends you then. It's better to be offended by the gospel now and have it change you than it is to be offended by the gospel on the last day when you stand before God. That's what he's saying here. Let this confront you now. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and Life. So here Jesus tries to explain that he's not teaching cannibalism. When he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's not teaching cannibalism. He says the flesh is no help at all. He's like, I, the, the words I'm speaking to you are spirit and life. This is a metaphor for receiving the Son into your life intimately so that he sustains you and fills you and satisfies you. You must take Him in. That the flesh is no help at all. You can do nothing to affect your salvation. The flesh is no help at all. You can't work for salvation. You can't um, earn your salvation. You can't buy your way to heaven. You must believe in Jesus and receive Him for salvation. Verse 64, he goes on and says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted to Him 
by the Father. So it says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who would believe in him. Um, there's some debate on whether it's talking about the beginning of his ministry, that when he began his ministry and he called his disciples, he knew who would believe and who would not. Um, or if this was from the beginning of time, before he created everything, before the foundation of the earth, that he knew who would believe in him. Either way, it's speaking to his uh, divine omniscience, that he is all-knowing and... Um, But it says, there are some of you who do not believe. Let me just ask you, how good of an example do you think Jesus was of his teaching? Like we say, from 1 to 10, um, he taught some things and then he lived some ways. How, how good of an example do you think he was of his teaching? 1 to 10. 10? Right? So we all agree. Um, probably a 10. He's... Um, He's perfect. He's perfect, right? Everyone just say, perfect. perfect. Right, he's perfect. And um, they had a perfect teacher. They had a perfect model, a perfect example. They had God in the flesh. They had words coming out of the Word. Himself. They had it good. Yet still, some did not believe. So that if salvation is dependent on the perfect presentation of the gospel. Don't you think everyone would have believed? This is coming out of the perfect teacher. But um, who's salvation dependent on? It's dependent on God, he says here. It's dependent on God. The Father must draw him in order for you to believe. You can't affect salvation on your own. It's a, it's a work of God in your life. And this gives me tremendous encouragement as a communicator of God's Word, as a preacher, because uh, I can rest in the fact that it, the salvation of people's souls does not depend, depend on my perfect presentation of the Gospel. That my job is just to share the Gospel to Preach the word, as Paul tells Timothy. Um, and God's job is to draw those unto salvation. And then our job is to believe. That's good news. If you feel like the reason I don't share my faith is because I just don't know exactly how to best do it. Well, it's not dependent on that. You just start talking. God will use you. You just start sharing and God will use you. And some will say, well, but, but I, just, I just share the gospel about how I live my life. I just live a good life before people. Well, here's, we already established that Jesus, they had no problem with his works. That it's not just the works that save people. It was his words. And yes, everybody's going to like you if they just see your works. But it's whenever you begin to share the truth with them that it confronts their sinful nature. And they have to make a decision. And anyways... God draws people unto Himself. Verse 66, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Wow. Once Jesus effectively discouraged every material and earthly motive for following Him, many stopped following Him. 
See, we know just in this chapter, the reasons why people were coming to him were um, for people came to him for his miracles. At the beginning, verse 2 of chapter 6, it talks about how they came because of the signs he did. People came to him for food that he filled their bellies when he fed the 5,000. And they thought that was really nice. And in verse 34, they, they say, give us this bread always. We really like the fact that you feed us. They um, came to him for political freedom and power. They, in verse 15, it talks about how they were going to come to him and f- make him king by force. And he's like, no, that's not the purpose because they wanted him to free them from the Roman oppression like Moses freed the Israelites from the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. And, and like that's, you're not getting it. See, see, the reasons they were coming to him were for physical, material, temporal reasons and, um, but if the Father has drawn you to the Son, you will love Jesus not because of, um, not because of His gifts. You will do- desire Him um, not just because of His works. See, true disciples come to Jesus because He is the prize, not because He dispenses prizes. Verse 66, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a scary verse. It says these were disciples. These, these aren't just the masses. These are, these are people who have a little bit uh, more commitment to Jesus. They've been following him. Disciple is a learner. It's a pupil. It's a student. Someone who's devoted themselves to following and receiving the teaching of a rabbi, and so these are people who are a little more committed than just the, the, regular, the regular crowd. These aren't the masses. You probably had the masses, the 5,000, then you had maybe the 72. We see where Jesus sends out these 72 disciples at one point. And then you have the 12. And, and so, um, so these are probably like the 70 or so disciples. This larger group than just the 12, but not the masses. They have a little bit more devotion to Jesus. They're a little more committed to Jesus. But it says that when they heard this, they left Him. They abandoned Him. They turned their back on Him. Which makes you say, man, did they lose their salvation? Did they believe and then they found this offensive so they lost their salvation? That's not what He's teaching. Um... 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might, be, might become plain that they are, are not all of us. That when somebody leaves the faith, when they leave the fellowship of the church, when they turn their back on Jesus, it doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It meant that they never had it. And their leaving proved that they were never of us, he says. That those who are true followers endure to the end. Yes. The most dangerous... This is a, this is a scary verse. Let's go back to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him. This is very scary. The most dangerous sin... There's a lot of sins out there, right? The most dangerous sin is the sin of unbelief. It's the only sin that is unforgivable. What I mean by that is, um, if you think of a, a heinous crime, murder, 
cold-blooded murder. Um, you can repent. God will can forgive you. You can still have eternal life after committing such a heinous sin. If you have unbelief until your grave, there's no forgiveness for that. You're, you're, going, you're, you're not going to heaven. You are going to hell. It's the worst sin, the sin of unbelief, abandoning Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I don't even really like to share stuff like this because the verse numbers are not inspired. Did you know the verse numbers weren't original to the author? They didn't verse these out. The, the verse numbers were added later uh, to give us uh, an ability to reference and study uh, different passages and have an easy reference in God's Word. So the verses are not inspired, but doesn't it seem like it's more than a coincidence that this verse is 666? That just means you notice that it's chapter 6, verse 66. And, and maybe you know that 666 is what's considered the mark of the beast. If 7 is the number of completion, 7 is the Lord's number, the number of completion in the Bible, 6 is the number of not quite there, incompletion, um, counterfeit, 666. And there's so many, there's so many people who are disturbed by what's the mark of the beast when are we going to get that mark of the beast and the mark is 666 and we wonder is it going to be is it a microchip that they're going to put in your skin is it is it a credit card people thought it was the social security card like what is it what is the mark of the beast maybe maybe the mark of the beast is unbelief Thought about that? Some of you are so worried about getting the mark of the beast. I don't want to get the mark of the I don't want to accidentally get the mark of the beast, and but you're living in unbelief. You already have it. What is a mark of a believer? If you thought about this, what is a mark of a true disciple? Well, Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. Is that what he said? That there is a mark of a believer in Jesus. That you're a loving you love people with a love that they've never seen before. What's the mark of an unbeliever? Well, they're unbelief. And so what we see is that there's just things that mark the lives of people. And there's things that mark the lives of true disciples. And there's things that mark the lives of unbelievers. And um, a big mark is that unbelief. Just chew on that for a little while. They abandoned Jesus over a teaching that they didn't quite understand. He tried to clarify. He tried to help them understand, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't get past the eating and the drinking of the blood, and they didn't see it like he said it. And How many people leave the faith over things that they don't understand? Maybe you've heard it said, I can't believe in a God who blank. I can't believe in a God who would allow evil. Can't believe in a God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, and good, but allows evil to happen. I can't believe in a God who is so narrow, who would require people to, to, make this, to have their life shaped by this that is so narrow in the way He requires people to come. I can't believe in a God who'd do that. I can't believe in a God, maybe you've heard it said like this, who sends people to hell. I can't believe in a God who would allow people to 
to be tormented. I can't believe in a God who blank. And the reality is, I can't believe in a God that you don't quite understand. That it's not that there's not good reasons for what God does and how God is, but it's that you can't understand it. How many of you, like if God could fit in the box of what I can understand, is He really God? Is He really God? So here, they, they, they can't believe in a God they don't understand. They turn their back. Man, being a disciple, this first point is making a commitment to follow Jesus with all of your life. All right? With all of your life. For the rest of your life. That's what true disciple, commit to follow Jesus. Second point, with four minutes to go. Second point is this. Um, true disciples confess faith in Jesus. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? Do you want to go as well? Can you imagine the rejection that Jesus is feeling at this moment? Uh, the masses left him. They only wanted to use him for what they could get out of him. Um, and then the, the larger group of disciples left him over uh, kind of a misunderstanding. They didn't trust him enough to believe. And now the twelve, it's him and the twelve, are all that's left. And he looks at them and says, do you want to, do you want to go as well? I, I think that, so Jesus experienced the rejection an abandonment that so many of us have experienced in life, but I think what he knew is this, that um, ministry ebbs and flows. He went from the masses, the large crowd of 15,000, 20,000 people feeding them, to now we're down to the 12. And did you know that in both things God is working? In both things God's working. I think in the Christian culture, we, we think if it's, if it's not growing, it's not healthy. It's not growing, it's not healthy. And that's somewhat a truism, somewhat a, a true thing, that healthy things do grow, right? But here, uh, Jesus' church is uh, shrinking rapidly. Rapidly, people are leaving him. Thousands of people turn his back. He leaves, and all he's got left is a small group. Good thing he was in a small group, right? You better start a small group. That's all he had left was a small group. But um, God works in it all. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said this, Churches have summers like our gardens when all things are full. But then come their winters, and alas, what emptyings are seen. This is life. You have high points. You have low points. God's working in all of it. And uh, maybe you've been here a long time and you've seen this church have very high peaks of move, and then you've seen them have very low lows. I know I've seen these things. And the comforting thing is that this happened to Jesus, the perfect pastor, the perfect leader, and God was working in it all. Verse 68, so Peter answered him, so he says, do you want to go as well? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter speaks up for the group as he often does. 
And um, he says a few things. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? This is what it's all about, right? This is his confession. To whom shall we go? Look, if there's an, another option for you, if, if, if Jesus isn't all for you, if you have another place to go for, for life and, and sustainability, then you might not have truly believed. You might not be a true disciple if there's a plan B for you. You're like, you know, I'm going I'm to try this Jesus thing for a while, but if that doesn't seem to work out, then I'll just I'll hop onto some other belief. I'll hop on, onto some other way. If there's any other way for you, Jesus needs to be your only resort. Not the last resort, the only thing. Whom are, who are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, he says. The Jesus' words give us life. We feast on them. He, he recognizes, you said that we must receive you for eternal life. We must feast on you for eternal life. And throughout the Bible, we see the idea of the Word of God being consumed as food. And uh, one place it's very clear is in Jeremiah 15, 16, where he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became uh, to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And we feast on the Word of God. Your words are eternal life. He says, We have believed. We have believed. This is not just intellectual assent or understanding. This is trust. This is we have trusted our lives to you. And then he says, we have come to know. This is the Greek word uh, gnosko, which is properly to know, especially through personal experience. So he says, we have believed, we've trusted you because we have come to know, we've experienced you. And have you had an experience with the Holy One of God? Have you had an experience with Jesus Christ? Has He changed your life? We have believed, we've trusted You, and we've come to know that You are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. Where does He get that idea? So in Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision um, or transported, something happened where Isaiah saw the throne room of God, saw Him high and lifted up, and he saw these angelic beings um, flying around the throne of the Lord. And what were they singing? They were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. He saw the Lord as the Holy One. And it, that experience had such a profound impact on Isaiah that then throughout the rest of his book, the book of Isaiah, he calls the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, 25 times. Just over and over, talking about the holiness of God, that He's the Holy One of Israel. Here's a few. Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. <laughs> you men of Israel, I am the One who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43.3 For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 47.4 says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name. His name is the Holy One of Israel. That He is unmatched in weightiness and worthiness. He is holy. And so here, they are making a confession of faith that they believe Jesus is 
is God, the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel. This title, the Holy One of God, is only used for God. He's saying, I believe you're God. I'm sorry, guys, you're not going to see a miracle today, but it's not going to be much longer. They're making this confession. True disciples confess faith in Jesus. Jesus asked this question, do you want to go as well? Who do you think he asked that question for? Do you think he asked it for himself? Do you think Jesus was feeling a little insecure? He needed some reassurance. He, he needs to know that everything is going to be okay. Can you guys just help me know? Are you with me? Are you not with me? Do you think he asked that for himself? No. I mean, he knows everything. We just saw earlier. He knew from the beginning who would believe. Like, he knows what's going on. He knows the hearts of his disciples. He asked this for his disciples. It was good for them to reaffirm their commitment to Jesus. So you got to understand... They're following Jesus. They're committed to Jesus. And things are going great. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is feeding people. He's the, he's the keynote speaker at this 20,000 person conference. Things are awesome. Everybody loves Jesus. And they're his closest disciples. They're his closest friends. And so they're like, yeah, we're with Jesus. That's right. That's me and Jesus. Uh-huh. But then now the crowd turned and now no one likes Jesus. And so they're experiencing this, this same wave of emotion, except for they're not the Son of God. So they're experiencing this wave of emotion where now they love and trust and, and believe in Jesus, but now it's unpopular to then believe in Jesus. And even the things he said about the eat the flesh and drink the blood, I think they're still wrestling with that, and they don't fully understand it, and they're kind of confused, and so they're conflicted here. And... Um, Whenever you find yourself confused or alone or when it becomes unpopular to believe in Jesus, you find yourself discouraged. You need to remind yourself of what you believe. We can get so stirred up and blurred and blown around by life and um, by popular opinion it's important to go back to, what do I believe? What is solid rock foundational for me? To remind your soul of your salvation. So just remind yourself, I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, I believe Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered, that he was crucified, that he died, and on the third day he rose from the dead. That he ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father where he will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, that God is three in one. I believe in the fellowship of the saints. I believe I'm forgiven. I believe the Word of God is God's revealed Himself to us. It is inerrant and inspired. These are the things I believe. When everything seems to be relative, let's remind ourselves of the truth. And I think this had more to do 
with a recommitment of the disciples that they needed it. They needed to articulate their faith in Jesus. But it seems like there might have been a little bit of this attitude of, yeah, we, we really believe. We're the true believers, Jesus. We ain't going nowhere. Because Jesus says in verse 70, did I not choose you, the twelve? I think he even wants to remind them, yes, let's make this confession of belief, but the most important thing is to remember that I chose you. And it's not your confession that saves you, it's me that saved you, and I chose you. It's a humble confession. And yet, he says, one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Our belief in Jesus should humble us, not puff us up like we are better than anyone else. Jesus chose us, and it's by his grace that we are saved. Um, some profess faith for the wrong reason, as Judas did. Um, and whenever he says you're the devil, he's, he's, he's not saying you are actual like Satan incarnate. Devil is accuser of the brethren. Devil is all these things. Satan. And what he's saying is that you, you, you're being controlled by the enemy, by Satan. That there's something that's going to control your life. Is Christ going to control your life? Are you going to allow him to shape and influence your decisions and your direction and your affections and all those things? Or is it going to be the devil who leads you to do things for the wrong reasons and things. The devil is going to control you is what he's saying. Let's just wrap up with this. Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Are you a true disciple of Jesus? And some of the things that Jesus says, some of the things the Bible teaches are hard to receive. And um, have you made uh, a commitment to follow Jesus with all your life for the rest of your life? Have you confessed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? You can do that today. You can do that in baptism next week. Sign up for baptism and you can make a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. That's what true disciples do. They confess faith in Jesus. Look, I don't want anyone in here um, to live their life under the false assumption that you're a disciple of Jesus, that you're a follower of Jesus, you believe on Jesus whenever it's all just a show. So let the word of God confront you. Let it change you. And let's commit to follow Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word and, um, and your spirit. And God, I thank you that, that you offer us eternal life. I thank you that you've made a way. That there is a way to eternal life. And I just pray, God, that your spirit would work on our hearts. God, that, that the believers in the room today who have believed on you, that their faith would be stirred, that their confidence in you would grow, that, that God, they would reaffirm the commitment they've made to you, Jesus, and that it would strengthen them for difficult days ahead. And I pray for the person who's never trusted you, and your Holy Spirit is stirring in their heart right now. You're, the Father is drawing them right now by the Spirit. And I just pray that they would lay it down today. 
that they would surrender their life, that they'd come under the authority of Your Word and Your truth, and that You'd transform their heart, God. That we'd make a commitment to You to follow You with all of our life for the rest of our life, and that we'd make a public confession. You are the way, the truth, the life. You are the Son of God. You are our Lord and our Savior. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in you. Holy Spirit, help us to walk with you this week. To walk in the Spirit and not satisfy the desires of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hey, if you um, want to commit your life to Christ, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, you can sign up for baptism on our Connect card online. You can let us know. We'd love to pray for you, okay?